We are uh, in this season thinking about the story of the curse on the ground um, and uh, really the overarching story of Genesis. And I've really enjoyed getting into Genesis this year. One of the things I've enjoyed um, the most is I've spent more time this year than ever before learning about some of the other stories that would have been known at the time of, of Moses writing the book of Genesis. So we talked about one of those stories a few weeks ago, the Enuma Elish, the Babylonian story of creation. I want to talk about a, a, another story today. Um, it's actually not a story, it's just a list. It's called the Sumerian King's List. I've got a tablet. Can you just put up my tablet picture for a second? Uh, so this tablet itself is um, we think the, 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 tap, the physical piece of um, clay there probably was inscribed around 1800 B.C. So that's 3,800 years ago or uh, about 350 years before Moses and the Israelites left Egypt. Okay? So um, this is a, a, literally just a list of kings. Oh, hold on. I got to um, take it down for a second. We'll come back. Uh, I just remembered something. I, wanted to, <laughs> I, was, I was in my office this week uh, on a Wednesday, and I was reading a book on this Sumerian King's List thing, and Orlando, who's our contemporary music um, director, walked in on me, and he said, what are you doing? You look like you're upset. And I was like, I'm not upset. I just, I don't understand what the heck I'm reading because I'm trying to read this thing, and like a third of it is in English, and the other two-thirds is in languages that I don't speak. And um, he said, Jim, you are the weirdest preacher I've ever met. He, he said, I've been, to, I've been to a lot of churches. He says, I've, you know, I've had youth pastors that were great that, you know, basically said, don't do drugs, don't have sex and worship Jesus. I've heard PhD pastors that like, you know, are way brilliant and amazing. And, um, and I've heard, you know, great pastors that do just kind of your standard three-point sermon. But, but you're, not, you're not like any of those preachers. You're kind of like, you're kind of like the Indiana Jones of preaching. <laughs> and I said, Wow. That is the best thing anyone has ever told me. You have unbelievable job security now. Just, <laughs> just bring this up anytime I'm upset and, and that's great. I was going to wear a fedora and a bullwhip today. I don't own a fedora or a bullwhip. Okay, um, so uh, back to the tablet for a minute. Um, so put my tablet up. Thank you very much. Okay, uh, so this is um, this really ancient piece of writing about this list of, of guys that were kings in Sumeria. Uh, here's why this matters, um, because I think Moses is in an, a very intentional conversation with his culture, right? Again, like 3,000 years ago, his culture about what they thought was important and how he wanted to challenge that and say, no, God has a different set of values and standards. So, um, this this. Sumerian King's List, there's a number of different tablets and versions, um, but most of them are pretty similar. Uh, and I'm just going to talk about the very beginning of it, okay? It's literally a list of names, but the very beginning of it says, um, essentially, in the beginning, kingship came down from heaven. Uh, and then it talks about usually ten guys. Uh, you can go one more slide. Um, ten guys who are listed as kings between um, the, the beginning when kingship comes from heaven and the creation story and um, what they call uh, the great flood, okay? So there's 10 kings between creation and the great flood. By the way, I don't know if you were counting today, but between Adam and Noah, it's 10 names, okay? Um, in this list, notice how long all those kings live, right? It's like 
tens of thousands of years. Now, our, our um, heroes or our figures, not heroes, our figures in Genesis 5 don't live that long, but you noticed how long they lived, right? It was hundreds and hundreds of years. Uh, in the Sumerian king's list, the seventh king, whose uh, name changes based on which ancient list you're reading, but the seventh king uh, ascends to heaven, and he gets wisdom from the gods, and then he brings it back down to earth. Remember who the seventh guy was in our list? His name was Enoch, and he walked with God, and he was no more. And the tenth figure in the Sumerians' king's list um, is this guy who helps um, some portion of humanity survive the great flood. The tenth guy in our list is a guy named Noah, right? I think you've heard of him. So, um, what I want you to realize is that when Moses is writing just even something as simple as this genealogy, he, he's not just writing in a vacuum, right? He's trying to communicate to his audience about stuff they already know. This list has been around at least 300 years before Moses wrote Genesis, okay? So, he's trying to communicate to his audience about stuff they already know, and he's trying to challenge some of their deeply held assumptions, right? So, okay, sure, all these intentional parallels between Genesis um, chapter 5 and this ancient set of writings. You can take that off. Thank you very much. Um, but there are some incredible differences. Uh, and, and I think what Moses and his audience would have first recognized would be the differences uh, that we're going to see um, really kind of inverted values about what his culture valued and what God was telling the people of Israel to value. And the most important and the most basic one is really simple. The Sumerian king's list is a list of kings, right? It's a list of kings. That's right there in the name. And every one of those is a king and a dynasty and the cities they rule over. Do we have any kings in Genesis chapter 5? Well, none of them, not that we can tell. They're all just regular guys, right? Just regular people. Uh, I think this is really interesting and super important. Uh, I, I think that the, the culture of Moses' day would have said uh, that the most important stories are about the most important people, and the most important people are the ones that are sitting on thrones. By the way, we kind of think this too, right? The most important stories in our world are about the most important people, and they're the ones that are like trending on Twitter or like in the news on Sunday nights, right? I mean, they get the most likes on YouTube. It's clear we know who the important people are in our world. Um, but then, then we get a very different list in Genesis 5. Oh, hey, do you remember last week? Uh, I know you do because you have a perfect memory for Genesis. And remember last week we, we heard about the line of Cain, and in the line of Cain um, we heard that um, they actually built cities, the first cities built by Cain. We heard last week uh, that the, the seventh generation from Cain was also a guy named Lamech, and he had two wives, and he killed a guy, maybe two guys, it's not entirely clear how many guys he killed, and he's really proud of it. Th those are actually qualities of kingship. Right? Uh, in the ancient world, kings are supposed to rule over cities. Kings are supposed to gather a lot of wealth for themselves and a lot of, usually a lot of wives for themselves. Kings are supposed to be the ones that control the violence, right? meaning sometimes they personally do violence to get their position, or they have state-sponsored violence. They raise an army and they go fight somebody else's army. Right? But none of that stuff shows up in Seth's line. Um, none of that shows up in this line of people that are calling upon the name of the Lord. 
We're going to talk next week about demigods. Um, and uh, there is a tradition in that line of Sumerian kings that the, the last few kings are part God and part people, like Hercules or Percy Jackson, right? But we'll do that next week. Just hold that thought. Now, but just, just stick with the king idea for a minute. Um, we discussed the very first day we talked about Genesis, that God sees humanity as royalty. We said that God wanted to partner with us, um, not to rule over us, but to rule with us, uh, and that God made us all to be queens and kings of this world. So the problem that Scripture has with this idea that the important people are the kings is that we are all the kings. Um, that God made us not to rule over each other, but to rule with each other. So God's vision is not that a husband rules over his wife or wives, or a king rules over his city or cities, or the strong rules over the weak, or the rich over the poor, or the healthy over the sick. God's vision is that power exists to help the powerless, not to compel them. Uh, and, and so this idea, such a simple one, that our list is a list of regular guys, and not a list of kings, is eternally significant. Um, Jesus, in the 25th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, lists the six most important people you're ever going to meet. Do you remember this story? Um, the six most important people you're ever going to meet. Uh, I, I, I'll tell you, they're, they're not lawyers and doctors and CEOs or pastors. Or um, Six most important people you're ever going to meet are somebody who's thirsty and somebody who's hungry and somebody who's a stranger and doesn't know anybody, and somebody who's sick, and somebody who's naked and needs clothes, and somebody who's in prison. Jesus says, those are the six most important people you're ever going to meet, because when you serve and love and care for them, you do it unto me. And so, <laughs> we have this amazing idea 2,000 years before Jesus uh, that goodness comes not through centralized power, but through the growth of those in the image and likeness of God. That, that somehow people are more important than kings or cities or nations or dynasties or institutions or companies or deadlines or budgets or processes or progress. Boy, we've done a lot of evil in the name of progress. C.S. Lewis, who's become kind of my guru for this season of my life, C.S. Lewis says, I care far more for how humanity lives than how long. Progress for me means increasing goodness and happiness in individuals' lives. It's the beauty of each simple human life, each image of God, where real progress happens, where real goodness occurs. Just imagine for a moment if, um, if we really lived this out, if we really believed uh, that, that goodness and progress and value and importance was attached to people and not to the things people make. Do you think the country of Russia would attack another country so it could expand imaginary borders if it believed that the lives of its soldiers were more important than the idea of a line and a map? Of course not. How different would our world be if we just bought into this idea that the track of blessing, the track of goodness in our life is as simple as the people around us? 
we see blessing growing in this story. We see um, from Genesis 1, God says I, He blessed them and encouraged them to be fruitful and multiply. Uh, and, and here we see them being fruitful and multiplying. And the blessing continues, right? People are growing. Um, but you notice the, the, the curse is there as well. And he lived this many years, and he had this kid, and afterwards he had more boys and girls, and altogether he lived this many years, and then he died. So we see, um, even in the story of Scripture, um, that the growth of the blessing and the growth of the curse are both happening kind of together. You guys know my favorite parable that Jesus tells is the, the parable of the wheat and the tares, or the, the wheat and the weeds. And the parable is really simple. A farmer goes out to sow seed in his field, and then in the evening, an enemy comes, and he sows weeds amongst the wheat. And the next day, um, they get up, and the workers come to the farmer, and they say, hey, there are weeds growing up against your wheat. What should we do? He says, leave it alone. If you pull the weeds up now, you'll damage the wheat. Let them both grow up until harvest time. Then the wheat will go into the barn, and the weeds can go into the fire. Jesus says, in a nutshell, that the kingdom of God is the wheat, and evil in this world is the weeds, and they're both growing up together. It's not that evil is winning. Uh, it's not that good is totally destroyed evil. They're both growing up together. We see it in this chapter, right? Um, and he had another child, and he had another child, another child, and he died, and he died, and he died. But here, before Jesus... Death gets the last word almost every time, with two exceptions, right? We notice them. Enoch and Noah are the exceptions to the rule. Uh, and so Enoch and Noah are going to be really important for us as we think about the growth of blessing uh, and God's desire for goodness to be increased through the lives of regular people. Um, Enoch is actually kind of… Um, mysterious. We don't get a lot of stories about Enoch. He doesn't show up elsewhere in the Bible. Um, but we, we get a sense that somehow the pattern is broken, literally, like literarily in the story, and also in his life, the pattern is broken. The pattern is normally you're born, you have kids, and you die. But for Enoch, he's born, he has kids, and he doesn't die. And we get this idea that perhaps, um, perhaps even the curse of death can be defeated. Perhaps there's a way for us to, to not die but live forever with God like we were originally intended to do. The problem with Enoch uh, is he's just one guy, and it doesn't pass on to the next generation. His son dies, and his son dies. But, but Noah's a little bit different. We're going to spend a lot of time with Noah in the coming weeks, but uh, Noah in this story is a little different because Noah isn't just a person that avoids death. Noah's going to help other people avoid death. Okay, so now we're finally, I know you've been waiting for this for like three weeks. We're finally going to talk about the curse on the ground for a minute, okay? Remember the curse on the ground in Genesis 3 and Genesis 4? Um, it's, a, it's this weird idea that it's getting harder to grow food, okay? Really, quite simply, it's getting harder to grow food because of sin. And, and there's a few things you're supposed to notice about the curse on the ground. This is going to be really important later. Uh, the first is, you know, sin is related to that in Genesis 3, but in Genesis 4, it's violence, Okay, violence is related to the curse on the ground. Remember, he, he kills his brother, and um, his blood cries to him, to God from the ground, and 
God says the ground opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood. Um, and there's this idea that as sin increases and violence increases in the world, um, the, the earth itself is suffering, right? The earth itself is cursed. Um, and our violence literally and figuratively ruins the land for food production and for life-giving. And as violence spreads, the curse on the ground spreads. And so we hear about Noah, what sounds like a prophecy. Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the toil of our hands. We're waiting for a serpent crusher, still waiting for somebody to come uh, and, and fulfill that promise. Maybe it's going to be Noah because we're getting a prophecy. He's going to fix the ground and fix our suffering and somehow make things right again, not just for himself, but for others. Uh, Noah's name means rest. Noah, rest. And there's a sense that what Noah comes to do is kind of the opposite of what a king does. What does a king do? A, a king conquers and controls and dominates uh, and, and wins Noah's just going to give you relief. He's just going to give you some comfort. He's going to give you, like, rest. And Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you Noah. I will give you rest. Jesus and Noah are the same kind of kings um, with a different kind of values and hope about what brings life into this world, not accumulating power and money and fame, but bringing life instead of death. I had the privilege this week of attending uh, two funerals. Um, one was for uh, Terry and Jill's dad, Roger Garrink, and it was a great celebration of a great man's life. Um, at that service, um, Jess Wakefield got up and he read a poem by Paul Harvey called God Made a Farmer. And some of you are probably pretty familiar with this. It's a beautiful poem. Um, Jess Wakefield has like credibility in the world of agriculture that I don't have. And he's preaching, I think, elsewhere this week. So I just got Paul Harvey um, to read it for us. And I want you to listen again to this poem, God Made a Farmer. And on the eighth day. God looked down on his planned paradise and said, I need a caretaker. So God made a farmer. God said, I need somebody willing to get up before dawn, milk cows, work all day in the fields, milk cows again, eat supper, then go to town and stay past midnight at a meeting of the school board. So God made a farmer. I need somebody with arms strong enough to wrestle a calf and yet gentle enough to deliver his own grandchild. Somebody to call hogs, tame cantankerous machinery, come home hungry, have to wait lunch until his wife's done feeding visiting ladies, then tell the ladies to be sure and come back real soon and mean it. So God made a farmer. God said I need somebody willing to sit up all night with a newborn colt and watch it die and dry his eyes and say maybe next year. I need somebody who can shape an axe handle from a persimmon sprout, shoe a horse with a hunk of car tire, who can make harness out of hay wire feed sacks and shoe scraps, 
who planting time and harvest season will finish his 40-hour week by Tuesday noon and then pain in from tractor back, put in another 72 hours. So God made a farmer. God had to have somebody willing to ride the ruts at double speed to get the hay in ahead of the rain clouds and yet stop in midfield and race to help when he sees the first smoke from a neighbor's place. So God made a farmer. God said, I need somebody strong enough to clear trees and heave bales, yet gentle enough to yean lambs and wean pigs and tend the pink-combed pullets who will stop his mower for an hour to splint the broken leg of a meadowlark. It had to be somebody who'd plow deep and straight and not cut corners, somebody to seed, weed, feed, breed, and rake, and disc, and plow, and plant, and tie the fleece, and strain the milk, and replenish the self-feeder, and finish a hard week's work with a five-mile drive to church. Somebody who'd bail a family together with the soft, strong bonds of sharing, who would laugh and then sigh and then reply with smiling eyes when his son says that he wants to spend his life doing what dad does. So God made a farmer. One of our heroes weren't heroes because they were rich or powerful or famous or had a lot of likes on YouTube or retweets on Twitter. What if we exalted those who humbled themselves, who gave away whatever power or riches or fame they had, recognizing that the people around them were more valuable than the things that people make? It's not that we all have to be farmers. Um, it's the idea that working to bring life, not death, out of the soil is like bringing life, not death, out of people, peace, not war, rest, not restlessness, unity, not division, eternity, not just longevity, that these come from a different set of values other than those that exalt human kings and power. And it's a set of values that have more staying power, too, we looked at a list of Sumerian kings. Anybody able to name one of them? Anybody able to name any Sumerian king? They were pretty important in their day. We forgot about them, but we remember some ordinary people. Before you came today, you remembered an ordinary guy named Enoch. Remembered an ordinary guy named Noah. That's what Christ calls us to be and to do. He calls us to be a group of people that look at the values of our world and say, uh, we're more committed to valuing people than the things people make or imagine. Um, that we're committed to rest and peace and life-giving and growing as the most important work of humanity. That we want to be a generation of change that's committed to seeking God and following God, and being like God, and sharing the rest and the peace and the hope of God to a world that still believes death always gets the last word. We're going to tell them that they're wrong. We're going to tell them that Jesus gets the last word. And the last word is, come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest. Thanks be to Him. Amen.